0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, the other people podcast is a listener supported program. All episodes of this show are completely free. There is an official app That is free. Everything's free. The entire show is free. So if you like the program, if you listen regularly, if it makes you happy, I hope you will consider showing some support. You can do that at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. All right. Thank you. You are not alone. You have found other
1: people. You and I have a friend in
0: common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I
1: think it's really beautiful. Uh, Gee, did it, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
0: And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person just one time. Hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles, California. I have Vanessa Gregoriadis on the program today. Her new book is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. She was just here the other day. Uh, Her book is the official October selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. For those of you who don't know what that is, uh, thenervousbreakdown.com is my online literary community, culture magazine. It has its own monthly book club. You can sign up for that over at thenervousbreakdown.com. It's a good deal. You get the book, and then I interview the authors on this program. So it makes for a well-rounded experience. So Vanessa Gregoriadis and I in conversation momentarily. Before we get there, uh, I do want to follow up a bit on uh, Wednesday's episode. This past Wednesday's episode, I believe it was number 486, my conversation with Chelsea Martin. In the monologue, uh, you know, I mentioned some things about my personal life, how I've decided to make some adjustments with regard to uh, my intake of chemical substances, like just the daily drinking of wine, trying to get rid of that in my life. And I got a lot of, uh, concerned tweets and emails, people being like, you okay? (laughs) Is everything all right? And I, you know, I, I thought that I was fairly clear about it. I know I was being a little tongue in cheek and a little silly in the way that I, you know, try to be in the monologues when I was uh, explaining this, but I think I might've left some parts out that I feel like for the purposes of clarity, I will include here. And then I'll stop talking about it because it feels tedious. I shouldn't have even said anything, but basically the gist is I, you know, I used to be like a guy who had a glass of wine or two every day, very moderate and uh, controlled, but yet every day as a kind of way to uh, soften the blow of uh, the grind of existence or whatever. And I've decided to do away with that for like, uh, like vaguely Buddhist reasons, or maybe explicitly Buddhist reasons, somewhere between vague and explicit. And I talked about that in the monologue last week just kind of wanting to do my best. I'm a dad. I've got kids and I don't want to have to need that. That's pretty much the gist. And it's also just like thinking it over and being unable to escape the feeling of deep truth that uh you know, I experience when I think about it. Uh it seems deeply true to me that I shouldn't be doing that. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it. It's just not for me. I want to try to make it not for me. And the other side of it is that, you know, I have, uh, for those of you who have listened to this show for a long time, you know, that my son is uh, disabled and is dealing with some uh, pretty, you know, tough health challenges. And I'm not going to get into the weeds on it if you haven't heard about it, but just he's got some physical disabilities, possibly um, some mental challenges. We don't exactly know the exact, you know, what it's going to look like for a few years, but It's a heavy burden, and I think that the part of the decision that I didn't necessarily articulate in last week's episode, which I want to clarify here, is that I'm kind of thinking uh, long-term. I'm looking ahead, and I feel like I'm going to need to be strong because of that. That's that's informing it to a large degree, maybe even a predominant degree, and I, I didn't say that because it's like, It's one of those things you sort of avoid in conversation because it's tough. So I'm looking down the road, like when he's an adolescent, he's a young adult, you know, he's going to have a, he's going to have some, some stuff that he's going to have to deal with. And I want to be able to help him and I need to be strong. I need to be fit, like not just physically fit, but like emotionally and spiritually fit, if that makes sense. So I'm trying to play a long game. I'm trying to be wise. And because of the particular set of challenges that I'm facing as a parent, you know, I have to make maybe more, uh, maybe I have to be a bit more intense than the average person. And then the other part of it that I don't think I necessarily articulated well enough is that, uh, there's a lot of rage in me as I think there would be in any parent. When you see something like this happen to your child, you know, you, uh, you get angry. It's so cruel. It's a cruel fate that has befallen my baby. And, uh, you know, I think it's natural to feel anger, but obviously I can't stay there and I can't let the anger defeat me. I know that. But it's like that scene in a movie, you know, that scene in a movie where like the dude gets punched in the face and it's like a really good punch. He just gets he gets clocked. And he sort of like shakes it off and then like spits his teeth out and smiles. You know what I'm talking about? That's kind of how I feel too. You know, when I make this decision. It's like I don't want any painkillers. Like, okay, life, you're going to hand me this. You're going to do this to my kid. This is what fate has for me. Okay, fine. No painkillers. Fuck you. I can take it. That's part of it. So hopefully that answers questions. (laughs) I'm okay. I'm actually, I'm fine. You know, it's a good thing. And, uh, I'm going to give it a shot. Now, does this mean I will never have a glass of wine for the rest of my life? No. Like if I'm at a wedding, fine. If I meet you out, you know, if I haven't seen you in a while, sure. If I go to a concert, which I do like once or maybe twice a year and somebody hands me a joint, I might smoke it. So if you see me and I'm like smoking a joint or having a glass of wine, it's not some tragic thing. I'm just talking about my day-to-day. You know? Like, uh, it's about like the 98 or 99% of my life. And then there's like the, you know, the 1% or 2% where you go out and you live a little or whatever. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. My guest is Vanessa Gregorianis. Her book is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent on Campus. I'm putting this up on Sunday, um, Because, well, first, you know, she's a book club author, but also because I feel like the themes that this book is dealing in are particularly germane this week with regard to all that has been in the news with Harvey Weinstein and uh, so on and so forth. I mean, this stuff is right there at the surface, and uh, this book speaks to all that. You know, maybe not directly, but Vanessa and I do address it in our conversation, and she's a particularly well-informed person to have on the show at this particular moment in time. So I felt like no time like the present. Let's do this. So without any further ado, this is Vanessa Gregoriatis. Her book, One More Time, is called Blurred
1: Lines. Yeah. Definitely affected me. I mean, hearing people talk about their sexual assault experiences, you know, for a few years is pretty brutal. Um, You know, and also trying to be like dispassionate in a way and have some journalistic objectivity is basically impossible in a situation like that. Um, You know, I think that from a lot of girls' perspective, I mean, you know, young millennial women, young like cusp millennials, like girls in college – Um, there's really this rising consciousness that like, you know, we're better in school than guys are. We get better grades than guys, you know, we can play sports too. And there's more girls enrolled in college now than boys. Um, you know, the world is kind of starting to be their oyster yet sexually they're still feeling very objectified and very demeaned. And there's been really hardly any movement, even as there is like, you know, gender parity kind of increasing by leaps and bounds. If you look at where we were two generations ago in terms of gender parity, I mean, it's just crazy where women are. You know, I certainly do not subscribe to the vision of gender relations that is like women are kind of in the hand in a handmaid's tail, right? Like we're, you know, living in this kind of fascist society that fetishizes us and is pushing us into motherhood and canceling our subsidized, you know, birth control and et cetera. Although they're obviously like you know, m- the more that Trump kind of tries to eat in to those kinds of women's rights, the more you realize that he has, like, a authoritarian bent wherein, like, he might not create the fantasy of a Handmaid's Tale, but he would create a really messed up world, like, if he could. And a lot of it would be, like, deeply misogynistic and, you know... About women's purity or sanctity versus sin and just like all of those kinds of themes are very, very much within his psyche, right? It's clear.
0: I guess. like, But I almost feel like, does he believe this stuff? Like, what is it? Oh, I think he does. It's coming from a place of ideology?
1: I think, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, let's not forget that, you know, during, I guess, I mean, maybe it was before the divorce. You know, Ivana Trump does have a fairly um, graphic story about how they hadn't had sex in months and she had told him to go um, get, like, I think it was hair plugs or something for get a scalp reduction or something about his (laughs) hair. You know, his hair is like really important to him. Um, and she had told him to go see this maybe surgeon. I'm sorry. I can't remember exactly. Um, and he was so furious about the doctor's visit that he came back and, um, raped her. Right. And she later walked this back. You know, there was of course a divorce settlement in the middle of this. Right. Um, but I think Trump just, you know, he's kind of Archie Bunker, right? He has all of these old school ideas about what minorities and what women are supposed to do in the way that they're supposed to serve him, basically. Yeah. Um, so... All that being said, like you know my point of view is not the typical orthodox feminist point of view that says that women's rights are under like vast siege, and you know um that that sexual assault is so um rampant that it is you know, unbelievable that women can get up every day and just function in this kind of society of violence. Like that's actually not my point of view. In the the, the
0: long arc of history, things are improving.
1: I believe that things are improving. And I wrote a pretty optimistic book about a really depressing subject, which is sexual assault on campus. And, you know, kind of looked at how um, the principles of consent are being renegotiated on campus. And, You know, my sense is that the Harvey Weinstein story, while um, the coercion that he was using and the verbal pressure that he was using are not unique, that that kind of compulsive um, predation um, of, you know, many women over decades right very much like roger ailes or bill o'reilly or bill cosby or you know allegedly terry richardson um that has a really significant pattern right that is like the bill cosby you know the drugs in the Grand Marnier that are told somebody's call you know told that that's like an herbal supplement right this the specific like the wine scene with the bathrobe with the massage lotion, like give me a massage. these kinds of things are you know really um signs of like the bad guys, right the dyed in wool predators, and of course, those guys go after multiple women, right? So multiple women kind of fall into their clutches.
0: Do you think Harvey Weinstein was like this when he was in college?
1: Um, No. I mean, it seems to me that this is probably very connected with his rise in power, right? And he realized (laughs) that, like, yeah, part of what you get when you're at the top of the prestige film business in Hollywood, you know, which he was for, what, probably 20 years, like, is you get also to, like, you know, just lord your sexual power over all the starlets and all the women who may at some point decide to be starlets and all the models who and, and any like basically beautiful 22 year old woman who you come across is like somebody you know baby i can make you a star as long as you get me hard like that's like essentially i mean in the crudest terms that's really where he was coming from You know, I don't know. I mean, my book is is certainly a different argument. Like, the argument is... What is the argument? I mean, the argument is really that, you know, the focus um, as societally should not be on these dyed-in-wool predators, not on the Harvey Weinsteins. Like, these are not outliers, but they're not the norm in terms of college sexual assault, which is really, you know, about formative sexual experiences of young you know, semi-affluent or affluent Americans, right? Like that's, drunk that's what I'm talking about. And Dr- drunk. And drunk, drunk A lot Americans. of the time. <laughs> right? And I mean, you know, college is really, I mean, look, 20% of American college students are virgins when they graduate. So it's not this kind of bacchanal that people imagine, right? It's not as though, oh, these young girls, they're just having sex with anybody and everybody. And like, what can they really expect? Actually, a lot of the sex that happens in college, it's like, this is your first partner or your second partner or your third partner. You know, it's most likely not much more than that. So I think that what we really have to look at is, you know, why is it that so many early sexual experiences of Americans and 20 million Americans are in college right now. Um, why is it that those are so negative? And even if they are, um, you know, bad experiences, okay, that's one thing. Bad sex is something everybody knows something about, right? But early sexual experiences that include sexual assault, um, those are experiences that are not learning experiences. Like they're not kind of, you know, if you talk to Princeton mom, she'll kind of say, well, these girls are drunk. They're making some bad choices. So what? You have to have a bunch of, you know, terrible sexual experiences before you figure out how to protect yourself and make good choices in life. And I just don't subscribe to that. Like I I don't think people, I don't think these are learning experiences. Like when somebody loses her virginity still wearing her underwear because like she's trying to not lose her virginity and somebody's kind of coercing her and pressuring her and maybe even physically pressuring her into that that's not like a learning experience you know we can label that rape because that is a powerful word to use for that situation it may not be a word that people really used before 5 years ago um But I think there needs to be an understanding that in college, the consciousness that's rising is among, is about all of this stuff. It's about, you know, the groping at the frat party, and it's also about the losing virginity with the underwear on, and it's also about, like, I sat next to this guy, on a couch while we were watching a movie in the common room with 12 people and he like slid his hand up my skirt and I didn't know how to not say anything and just like all of this kind of like weird like let's not forget college sex is actually really gross like it's not (laughs) actually what you see on television or like you know American Pie or whatever like show you're watching that is about you know sex and young kids like it's actually pretty gross most of the time (laughs) so You know, I'm interested in like, how do we roll back some of this grossness while also not coming at this issue from a respectability politics perspective, which is not one that I would ever come at this from. A what perspective? Like a respectability politics perspective of, well, if everybody just stopped drinking and this hookup culture is out of control. And young kids today have no sense of morality, and they're all on their phones all the time, and they're objectifying each other. I mean, I can't really go down that road that's so far from, like, my stance generally on the world. It's also Um, not
0: realistic. I mean, mean, some of it, I mean, maybe there could be a little bit of improvement, but it's hard. I don't think you can draw a hard line.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You're I think it's it's easy to... as like somebody of an older generation, which I'm like a Gen X mom of two, to kind of look at the kids and be like, kids today, you know, but that's not going to actually help the situation or change anybody's mind. Um, you know, kids certainly like nothing less than an adult coming in and telling them how to live their lives. Right. It's tempting though. It's Isn't it weird? so <laughs> tempting. Yeah.
0: How did you get into this? Like, how did you, how did this topic God, obsess you? Why,
1: why did I do this? Um, well, I mean, I started this project, um, after I interviewed Emma Solkowitz from, um, Columbia university, who was the woman who was carrying the mattress around Columbia. Mattress girl. Um, mattress girl. Right. And, um, I wrote a story for New York magazine. She was on the cover. It was called a very different sexual revolution on campus. Um, so already with that title, we were kind of playing with this idea of like, is this a sex positive movement? Is it a sex negative movement? Like, you know, we're not going to talk about sexual assault just only in terms of power. We're going to talk about it in terms of sex also and sexual norms and mores and ethics and how they're shifting for this generation. And I do think that, you know, I grew up being taught rape is only about power, but actually when you look at what's happening on college campuses. It's a, a lot of it is about sexual mores as well. Um, so what does that mean? <laughs> so, I mean, I, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before, which is like, you know, there's so much sexual assault going on on college campuses, and I don't subscribe to the one in five women are sexually assaulted by graduation numbers, unless everybody understands what's in those numbers, which is some attempted sexual assault Which is really hard to quantify because how do you know that that guy was really coming after you if you just left because you were kind of freaked out by being in a storm room? Um, Certainly includes public place groping, right? Um, Which is, you know, bad. I don't like it. I don't think it's good, but I also would like to separate things that are physically violent rapes from public place groping because I don't think they're the same. No, yeah. Um, But there's, you know, very much a feminist kind of POV here that it's all violence no matter what, and it all needs to be taken care of in one fell swoop, and starting to separate out people's stories into. Bad and not that bad is not helping the cause.
0: Yeah, but on a punitive level, you can't punish the crimes the same way, right? I mean, so right. you have to parse it. Like you do have to sort of like separate the trash. That's right, the way I'm right. thinking of it.
1: No, I I totally agree with that. So I think if you start separating out, you get to like a one in fourteen women sexually assaulted by graduation number, something like that. One in ten, one in fourteen, that is still absurdly high. You know, so I was really interested. You know, I've I. As a journalist, have written for like twenty years about um, not only celebrities and pop culture and done like tons of profiles of you know Justin Bieber or Taylor Swift or Katy Perry or Nicki Minaj or you know just done these kind of long form um, catchy profiles, um, but also a lot of investigative work um, and. Uh, a lot of stories about youth culture and, you know, I, and, and sex culture. Like I, you know, went on a plane with Joe Francis from Girls Gone Wild to spring break in Florida. How was that? That was really weird, particularly (laughs) because he got arrested while I was there. So, you know, I went out with him. I mean, this is way, you know, I have to be honest that um, one of my claims to fame is that I broke that story because nobody knew who Joe Francis was. And I was like, well, who is the person who runs Girls Gone Wild. And, you know, I found, I was like, oh, it's this guy. He's kind of like my age. He's young, lives in Hollywood. He's super psyched for me to come write about him. He said, I can go on spring break with him. Um, so, you know, here I go.
0: Did you travel private jet with this guy? What's so
1: his... I went, so I went and I met him in Panama City Beach and he was there. And, you know, Joe has um, had a beef with Panama City Beach basically since that year that we were there. And Why? that was probably like 2000. Why? Um, maybe it was a little later. Um, okay. You know, Panama City Beach doesn't want him there because like you know, high levels of the police department are Christians and they don't want anything to do with the spring break situation generally, but they definitely don't want anything to do with like videotaping of naked girls on their beaches during spring break by some idiot from the Hollywood Hills. Right. You know, (laughs) so there's that aspect to it. Uh, There may be more to it, but I, you know, went around with him and, um, learned that, you know, his big move was like, Hey, who wants a t-shirt? And then he just like, was like, could you take your shirt off? And then you could like put my t-shirt on. I could like take a video of you while you took your shirt off. I mean, it was really pretty sick, but you know, it was kind of exciting. Like here I am in spring break and watching this all go down and kind of completely repulsed, but also like, this is pretty good, pretty interesting story here. Um, so are you like, are you like
0: incognito? Like, are you, dressing like a spring break, or are you just like reporter hanging out on no, the beach
1: i mean i dress pretty casually to begin with so um you know i always introduce myself as a reporter to anybody because that's kind of like the reporter's ethic you know okay. you can't like pretend you're somebody you're not but i definitely don't like call attention to me i, mean, I don't tr- travel with a video crew or like podcasting <laughs> equipment you know like i just mean with, like me. a notebook and... right
0: <laughs> i don't Everywhere have all I the go. gear
1: <laughs> um so i was you know i was there i was checking this all out and then and then, you know we had, we all went out that night cuz he had like a million other guys who were shooting for him and um and then i went home and i went we were all staying in the oh my god i think it was like the holiday inn and panama city beach So i went to my room and you had to have like a specific bracelet kind of as a safety measure because you know or whatever they didn't want anybody to go upstairs who wasn't checked into the hotel like spring break right so i went up to my room and went to sleep and like four in the morning these cops are banging down my door and i was like what is going on and they were like are you part of the joe francis party and i was like yeah, but I'm not with them. Like, I'm separate. I'm journalist. And they are like, you need to leave right now or we're going to arrest you. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> I haven't done anything. I'm not leaving. Like, I am asleep. I'm definitely not leaving here. And they were like, no, you have to leave here right now. And I kind of argued with them. And then I was like, what? Am I like this much of an idiot? Like, what the hell is going on? I'm missing the story right now. Like, I'm arguing about how I want to go back to sleep. So he had called come back to the hotel. Allegedly, let's use a lot of allegedly's here. he come back to the hotel and he wanted to have these hookers come upstairs, but they didn't have the wristband. So he got into some sort of argument and he was like, I'm going to own this hotel the next time I come here. It's going to be the Joe Francis Holiday Inn when I come here. And he brought the girls up anyway. And I think the mate, the hotel called the cops, whatever it was, they arrested him, they took him away. And so I was like, damn what's going on now i don't know what you know so i went with these weird creepy guys to like somebody's condo hung out we waited and then you know in the morning joe showed up and he had like gotten sprung and he was like laughing about it he was like you know i like they gave me this form and it said like what kind of car do you have and i said well is there like a, a box here for like what kind of plane i have because i came here on a plane you guys <laughs> so we got in a plane this is truly one of the craziest reporting experiences i've had <laughs> so we got in a plane and we were he was like let's go to what is it brownsville the other big you know, spring break place?
0: South Padre Island? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. South Padre Island. Exactly. Let's go to South Padre Island in Texas because, like, we're going to blow this popsicle stand of Panama City Beach. And I was like, all right. (laughs) And we get on the plane and he's like, you know what we're going to do now? We're going to do zero gravity in my plane. And I was like, really? I think, like, let's just kind of, like, stop while we're ahead here. Like, we got you out of jail. We're ready. We're leaving. We're going to another party. And he insisted that the pilot Drop the plane, and so we all like he was like somersaulting down the aisle of the plane, and like,
0: um, like wait, like an astronaut, like an astronaut, like yeah, you, were you floating?
1: Yeah, we were floating. I I floated somewhat. I feel like I put my seatbelt on and was like, I'm not participating in this somehow, and like Was it the wait, seat. Was it terrifying? It was not exactly. Um, it was not exactly uh like a good experience. I know. So let's put it that way. It was. I was kind of like, we've had enough danger for the last like 24 hours. I think we need to stop this now because you kind of realize, you know, (laughs) it's like being in Trump's America. You're like, I'm in a plane with a madman. Um, And there was a story. I'm not going to say who the names are because I don't honestly remember. But there were some young guys who were on a very popular sitcom and a few years after this there was a story that made the gossip pages that they were on a plane with him and they had to make like this major emergency landing and there was like something wrong with the plane but so there was a rumor that zero gravity was involved but it wasn't and i was like no dude i think it was <laughs> <laughs> like, i think this is like a thing this guy did a lot allegedly i think it was his go-to know, it's like it was his go-to <laughs> Um, it, you know, yeah. So I had done that. I had done a story about, um, 420 at UC Santa Cruz called the most stone kids on the most stone campus on the most stone day of the year. Um, that was a very fun story. As about... a graduate of
0: CU, as a graduate of CU Boulder, I would beg to differ. <laughs> right. We'll, t- well,
1: I should, I should we'll go take and, your 420 right. in Santa
0: Cruz and raise yeah.
1: you. I mean, CU Boulder, I also think now is just, you know, yeah, all these places I mean smoking pot now is like whatever, like drinking a wine cooler or something. Yeah. So um I done various stories that were basically about like youth culture and I look pretty young even though I'm not young and I knew that I could go to college campuses fairly easily and blend in and um figured like okay, this is interesting. Like here I have a story about college sexual assault, um I have, like, just met a bunch of women who are, you know, Emma Sokoloff's friends who are intensely intelligent, who are so articulate, who know exactly what they're doing um, as activists and what they're looking to accomplish. Which is what? Which is, like, blow up the rape culture. Like, it's all wrong. Like, that's really funny, Vanessa, your story about Joe Francis. What the hell were you doing there? Like, why did you even give him breath? Like how can you sit here and call yourself a feminist and you wrote an article about Joe Francis even right exactly, even if it's a you know an article where you like take some swings at him like what Why did you think that that was worth devoting and and it really was mirrored you know by women's media, which has become intensely radical in yeah. the past. You know, basically five years. Okay,
0: so I want to stop you because uh, I'm Gen X too, so okay. we're we're contemporaries. Yeah,
1: we're, we're we're old. Yeah, yeah. we're old.
0: <laughs> but I have uh, I have friends who are significantly younger uh, in the literary community, and you know, uh, I, I talk to them. I think I talk to them to learn. But I'm also on Twitter, where I'm like following or reading the tweets of a lot of people in younger generations, and I feel that generational difference. Like, did you – I mean, you must have felt that, like going back,
1: comparing comparing your own experiences with theirs. Okay, well, I went to Wesleyan University, which is one of the most liberal schools in the country. It's like Oberlin or Reed or Santa Cruz. I mean, it is – the place where you go if you're radical and cool, yeah. right? Like Lin-Manuel Miranda graduated from there. Santa Gold graduated from there. The guys from MGMT and Das Racist graduated from there. I had cool ID so,
0: in here just
1: uh, there you a few go. months ago. There you go. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I felt like, you know, I had heard this stuff before. Like I had heard this in the 1990s at Wesleyan. It was almost like a time travel machine, you know, which going back to any college campus is kind of like a time travel machine. It's pretty awesome. But for me, listening to these young students who were friends with Emma, I was like, no, 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 really? This is the stuff we were talking about. How exciting is it that you guys are making good on it and you're bringing it mainstream, which, you know, it was never really mainstream. I mean, identity politics in the 90s were kind of, like, very quickly stamped out, right? There was an idea that was kind of floated in, like, around, like, late 80s, early 90s. Dinesh D'Souza came out, you know, and said, like, this isn't the case. Katie Royfi came out and said, date rape is bullshit. You know, this kind of, those ideas were dispensed with very quickly. Interestingly, they're pretty much being dispensed with right now in Trump's America as well. But... Since we now have such a polarized country, we have like half of the country that is believing in it, and the other half that just like wants to pummel.
0: Well, whatever's on my route. Twitter feed, like, is just not having it. Yeah. Like, I, I mean, they're not having Trump's America version. Right. For like, sure. And, and yeah. There, there's a, I don't know. There's a fierceness and a determination and a, um, I don't know. Just uh, There's strength in numbers. I think it it feels different. It feels like there is something
1: changing. No, it's the resistance has risen. I mean, we're (laughs) like part of the resistance. So like, again, it's like a TV show and we're, you know, we're all connected and we're making like hieroglyphs to each other, like through our car (laughs) windows. I mean, it's like really intense. I think that, um, you know, what has been happening among college students for the past five years is so intimately connected with the current resistance to Trump. Because, you know, while Gen Xers don't (laughs) kind of agree with all of the millennial rhetoric around social justice and intersectionality, because, um, you know, we're actually a little bit more pragmatic because we're older. And we're like, we can't actually solve all of these problems, you know, and... (laughs) a lot of this activism is just Twitter activism. It's really easy to say you believe something It's really hard to actually follow through with it. And also like <clears throat> a lot of us know that we were activists in college and then, you know, you graduate and you kind of like, you're like, Oh, now I'm in the real world and now I'm doing this and that. And, you know, now I got to bake some like cupcakes for my kids, like, you yeah. know, first grade, like bake off. And my God, I'm like way too tired to do anything. I mean, it's just r- r- the real world kind of smacks you in the face. Um, the position of college kids in America is to be idealistic, right, is to have these kind of grand, big ideas and not be so jaundiced about it and to also have the time (laughs) to like, I really love college kids. Uh, I think they're great. I mean, I think like, that was the most fun part of this for me was getting to to hang out with kids again and realizing like they're sponges, you know, they're just listening to what's around them and taking it in and trying to figure out how does that relate to who I am? And they're, they're not quite really adults yet. You know, they're really still forming their ideas. So they're so porous and open to stuff. Um, And that can be good and bad, right? Um, And I think that some of their like holier than thou attitude um, so uh, publicly on social media um, is a little much. You know, I find it a little annoying. Um, but when you meet those same kids that are posting all these screeds, and you know, they're just awesome. They're just actually really awesome one on one.
0: Right. <laughs> well, that's. I mean, I think a lot of times you like you, like you. No, sorry. You deal with somebody uh, on social media, and then you meet them in person. There's often like there can there can be like a striking difference. You can be expecting to have somebody sure. come at you with like a polemic, and they're just actually. Right. I don't know. You get performative on social. You get a little bit more yeah. co- courageous than you would normally be. Right.
1: Everybody's declaring various things and trying to position themselves and trying to get attention. And you're only going to get attention if you're like setting stuff on fire, basically. Right. That's mm. it. Um, you provoke a strong reaction to like get a like. Um, so. Yeah. So I started doing you know, this kind of research thinking like, well, this is a good topic for me because not only is it about young people, not only is it about sex, not only is it about social trends, but it's also about sexual assault, which is something that, you know, I have in my life kind of thought to myself well, what, where, who are the abusive men and how do we Identify them, you know. I've had friends who have dated guys who have abused them and felt like really horribly um guilty about not like really expressing myself fully and not saying like "get away from that guy." right um, you felt you guilty? Know? Yeah, well, yes, I did. The yeah, failed. You failed your friends, right? Exactly. Like you know, because my because I'm such like a kind of like relativist, and I'm like, oh come on. I mean, how bad can it really be? Like. He seems creepy and weird, but like, you know, you do like him, right? I mean, you know, I I think you can kind of tro- talk circles around um, relationships and you can really excuse a lot of stuff that shouldn't be excused. Kind of like this Harvey Weinstein thing of like, yeah. well, he didn't do it to me, thereby, you know, I bet you most of the girls get away anyway. I bet you most, I mean, nobody who is intelligent would like, Stay right. I mean, anybody who stays is probably just a slut. Like, I mean, I can't imagine how all of these people who escaped this, like, pretty terrifying situation justified in their own minds, um, keeping that secret over so many years, right? And I'm not saying that like they need to put their careers on the line and come out publicly and say it, but you do wonder why they didn't spread the word more in the hollywood community and smear him right because that would be this that would be kind of i guess that's not really safe for an actress because being an actress is so caught up with like a sexual self and you need to be seen as like so desirable you know and like you're going to start talking about like Harvey Weinstein and sexual assault, like, oh my God, aren't you just like one of those frigid bitches who just like wants to tell guys that like they can't even make an advance? Like, I mean, whatever. Like, how do you even know if somebody's interested until you make the advance, right? Like, so I can see in some ways how like there might have been like a running track in their minds that was like talking themselves out of talking about it. But I do find it, you know, sad, I guess, that. You know, there wasn't more of a um, like, kind of just like smear him among the people we know. Like, you don't have to go public with it because that's an intense decision for a woman to make. But like, make sure everybody knows. Well, but I you mean, know? I
0: think maybe there's a situation where they don't—they don't know who to trust. Right? Are the, is this person going to go back to Harvey? And like, can I tell Matt Damon? Can I tell? So-and-so who knows so-and-so who knows Matt Damon. Like, is it? what if it gets back to Harvey and he finds out I said it? And then, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's probably what keeps people back, too. It's like, is this going to come back to haunt me? Right. But I also, like, there's a part of me, and I know this is, like, simplistic thinking, but there's a part of me, as I've been reading all this this week, who just wished, like, somebody would have just, like, picked up a lamp... Or like just beat the shit out of them. Like a woman. Oh, I'm sure that
1: happened. I'm sure that happened once. I hope so. Or just like or
0: or just like looked at him and was like, fuck you.
1: Oh, I think that happened. I mean I think some of those people did that. I think I think that happened. I mean, the stories of resistance are pretty like extreme. I mean, I've I've read what? Like there's probably been at least fifteen or twenty of them that have come out in the last week. Um, I was just reading one about, like, a young model who put her story on Medium, and she said, like, I'm one of those people where when I get scared, I just get mad. Oh, Zoe Brock. Right. She's a a friend of mine. Oh, see, there you go. Yeah, Yeah, that was a really powerful story. And she was like, I just got mad at him. And I screamed at him and said, like, you pretended to be my friend. Now you're running around naked after me. Like, what's wrong with you? And then then
0: he started like whimpering and said, you don't love me because I'm fat.
1: Right. You don't like me because I'm fat. Which
0: like, you know, I haven't heard that repeated in any of these other stories. But I thought like, well, there's a there's a telling moment and like maybe like a window into his soul. And, Mm -hmm. you know, but okay. like when it comes to, I guess, people like him and it, there's a spectrum, you know, there are people who, like you said, at college campuses may, there's different kinds of assault and there's different tiers to this. But when it comes to people like him, do you think that he is an evil person? Do you think that people who really commit, uh, like aggravated sexual assault are somehow genetically predisposed to evil or sociopathology, mm-hmm. or do you think that these people are, are uh, reenacting some sort of right. abuse that they themselves, like what causes okay, these people? So,
1: I mean, I do think, you know, specifically college, cause that's like what I studied. I yeah. mean, I do think that the structure of the campus has a lot to do with it. Like I tell the story of the Vanderbilt football rape, um, which happened, you know, in 2013, um, in the story in really graphic detail to, um, point up what I think is wrong. And, you know, that rape was committed on like an unconscious woman who was drunk. She was passed out drunk, basically. She was white. And she and her white boyfriend, who was also a football player, um, had gotten wasted. uh, Like a football booster was paying the tab at a bar. They'd gone back to her dorm. They could, I mean, her apartment, they couldn't get the door open so they got in her car they drove to his dorm by the time they got there she passed out she had passed out and at that time there were three black football players who were in the parking lot and the white football player kind of called them over like look at this this is so funny this girl's passed out and the four of them took her upstairs um and you know this is all on surveillance so we know exactly what happened because the dorm is outfitted with all these video cameras and we saw um you know, we saw basically them kind of take her into this room and then they began documenting it with their own like photos and videos, which is really insane that you would <laughs> do you something like this and like record it for posterity. And you know what their defense was? We thought it was funny at the time, right? So they had this woman kind pass out on the floor and they were just like sticking their fingers in her um, kind, you know, nobody had like sex per se with her, but you know, one of them allegedly stuck their penis in her mouth and like, you know, one of the black guys, um, peed on her and said, this is for 400 years of slavery, you bitch. So they really used her like almost like a blow up doll or something just to like get all their aggression out and. I don't know if they were like homoerotically performing for each other. I don't know what the dynamic between, you know, in gang rape, a lot of it is about the dynamic between those guys right in the room at that time. Um, you know, those guys are going to jail for, to prison for no parole, 15 years, each three of them, you know, the fourth one kind of turned. Um, so that's a serious punishment. Um, for, you know, a racially charged rape, right? It was racially charged, aggravated sexual assault. And <clears throat> I think the race element has a lot to do with why those um, sentences were so stringent. But, you know, when you look at something like what Harvey Weinstein did, on one level, you could say, well, look, this is like a lewd conduct. It's, you know, I, I don't know, like, you know, sexual battery, something like that misdemeanor kind of stuff, Right. But the pattern of what he did over so many years was clearly much more offensive to any, like, reasonable person and much more deserving of punishment, right, than a short, sharp blast of uh, sexual assault that happened, you know, in a kind of like fart in the cosmos way where like these guys didn't even know each other, you know, they just all happened to be in the dorm. It was the beginning of football practice season. Um, The white guy was new to the team, like crazy things like that do happen on college campuses. And that's, really, really different than serial predation that's completely premeditated. Right? Right. This was not what we know about that. We don't know about those guys' pasts. We don't know what they had done to whom, when, blah, 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 blah. But we know that that was not premeditated that night. And so, you know, what can we, like, take away from the Harvey Weinstein situation you know, that's important, I think it's less to focus on, like, the monsters in our midst because those guys are there and they exist. It's more... But, you know, they may not be enough in number to really warrant, like, just everybody freaking themselves out like it's a ghost tale and oh my God, these guys are everywhere, yeah. right? Because yeah. these guys are not actually everywhere, but our reaction to them is what's so significant and the ways in which people covered it up for him. It was institutionalized, obviously within the film industry and Miramax, um, that the women felt hugely denigrated by it. Mira Sorvino, Ashley Judd, that these people were you know, traumatized is probably the wrong word and it's a loaded word to use these days. Um, But like, you know, deeply disturbed and depressed over it and felt worthless and felt like somebody had tried to show them that, you know, who's the real boss, basically. Like who really runs this? Who really runs your life? Who's really in control, right? Because, you know... Well, I said earlier, like, sexual assault is not just about power. It's also about sex. What's really about is control. I mean, sex has a lot to do with control. So, you know, that's the part.
0: Do you think he's evil? Like, do you believe that? Oh,
1: yeah, I do. I do think he's evil. I mean, I don't think he's... Like, I think you could write an amazing play about him. I don't think it's as easy as just, like, he's evil and, you know, that's, you know, the end, right? But... He's clearly got like some complex psychology that, you know, the mind of Harvey Weinstein is a really um, dark place, dark place with a lot of nicks and crannies. And like, look, we all love to think we're good people. We all like to think that any of our actions are justified. So there has to be some sort of crazy gymnastics that he was doing that justified this Beyond just, like, all women are whores. That's some right? crazy
0: gymnastics. Yeah. <laughs> but did you ever read that article? I think it was in, like, The Atlantic, and it was about parents who have kids, and, like, the kids are just psychopaths.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you have, Did you see that? I don't think I did read that. No, no that's good, though. The, I want to read that. Uh, you yeah, got,
0: It'll haunt you, because yeah. it's about these parents who are like, you know, we had the baby, and, like, you know, we noticed that, like, when, you know, when he was four, he kept trying to, uh, you know, stab his sister with an, or her blood or hair on fire. Like, I mean... Like some kids just come out yeah. war- like wrong. They had mm-hmm. they're missing a chip, you know. And right. so it's like, I'm like, oh shit, because you you just uh, you, you'll read a story about somebody who just like you know turns down the wrong street corner and something terrible happens. Mm-hmm. They run into this person who's just right. There are those people in the world, mm-hmm. and when I hear about like. You know, when you listen to that tape of Harvey, like pressuring that girl, it's so upsetting. You're like, who the fuck is
1: this? (laughs) What's wrong with people or Bill
0: Cosby? Like, like, what psychopath is like, and and the other thing too, who enjoys having sex with an unconscious person?
1: I know. I know. It's like necrophilia. Right, right, right. Yeah. I mean, I think that young men in college kind of do some sort of somersault about like, well, that girl, she was really drunk before and now she's kind of passed out. But like, she kind of walked out of the party with me, you know, this Brock Turner kind of situation, right? Yeah. Well, was she like, she walked out of the party with me. She wanted to go home with me. Like, I'm sorry she passed out, but like her intention was clear, you know? Um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, the pressuring, you know, there's a lot of, Discussion on college campuses now about this yes means yes standard, right? So the consent standard on college campuses in California, New York, Illinois, Connecticut, all Ivy Leagues, lots of state colleges is way higher than the consent standard for somebody in West Hollywood who is trying to claim sexual assault, right? So it's this notion that like no means no is not enough. And why are we saying that? Because no means no is actually like on a practical level, not working really that well, because there's so many women who basically say, well, I did say no, he didn't care. So there's that one. And then there's, well, I said no, but I stopped because I was afraid. So there's that one. And then there's, I said no, but then I kind of felt like, I don't know, what can I do? Like, maybe it's just easier to say, okay, or just say nothing and just kind of do it and get it over with, right? And when you listen to that Harvey Weinstein tape, you know, yes, on one level, you're like, wow, this is like predation on Adderall. I mean, this is like somebody <laughs> who's like, you know, you think like, this is like, a, it is a ghost story. Like the idea that this person, um, you know, who be, could be in control of your entire film career right Ugh. like is like just motor mouthing you to death like uh, uh, i i just don't relentless. know i never even heard relentless. somebody talk like this yeah. just like this relentless pressure you know but the fact is is that A lot of girls do get pressured like that. They don't get pressured to the point where, like, somebody's not even taking a breath and just relentlessly being like, you know, just sit there, just sit there. I mean, with the crazy things he was saying, I won't do anything. I'm a famous person. Don't embarrass me in this hotel. You know, (laughs) whatever his repertoire is there of coercion, you know, but there's enough coercion in like, oh, I have blue balls or like, you know, oh, I could just put the tip in or like you know what's what's wrong like why don't you want to do this like come on you know like there's enough coercion that's going on that is not cool that i feel like this yes means yes standard is a really good one right because it requires that you a guy and it is going to be gendered right kind of asks a girl like okay do you want to do this and that becomes an additional question like hopefully in addition to the protection It seems question, so elemental. It seems so <laughs> elemental. And like, I don't go for this, like, yes means yes. Like every time you have sex with your partner who you've been with forever, you have to like, make sure you get a yes for every like oral sex or this or that. Like that's seems like intuition, intuition works. But when we're talking about hookups and one night stands and we have so many girls coming out of it, feeling violated, like we have to take some steps here. Um, and that, just makes sense to me. Um, you know, so The Atlantic ran a three-part series, right, about sexual assault that came out in September. And the core example that the writer used was a story from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And it was about a guy that she believed had been railroaded. And a girl had, a student, had kind of like talked to this guy. She was really high. She was Talking to him, it was late at night, and she um, said, like, I want to go someplace and vape. And he said, like, let's go into this room. (laughs) And then they started to, like, hook up. And, you know, there's, like, this pretty graphic hookup. um, And, you know, she had straddled him. I mean, the the writer used these details that were in the underlying legal documents to make it clear that she was – you know, maybe kind of the aggressor, but it was definitely consensual, right? Okay, fine. So, you know, this is a big deal. This is the Atlantic magazine. But if you look at the underlying document, what you find out is that the episode is a little bit more complicated than that, right? First of all, not only, and this is the victim's statement. Okay, let's call her like maybe not a victim because she was, you know, University of Massachusetts' did not find her story worth punishing the boy. So maybe victim is the wrong word, but the girl, let's just say. Um, you know what happened? Okay, she agrees. She went into the room with him. They vaped. They hung out. They kissed. Um, she did straddle him. I'm not going to get the exact like... Um, sequence. Sequence, correct. But she said at some point... She started to, she said to him, I don't want to have sex. And he said, that's okay. We don't have to have sex. She then in her mind thought to herself, I feel really bad because I've just worked this guy up. Um, Now I'm not going to have sex with him. And I'm realizing actually I'm super high. And so she or he went to turn off a light and she was like, Oh my god, I can barely move my body. I'm actually really high. And I feel bad because I totally worked this guy up. So I'll just give him a blowjob, right? So she gets on her knees, she's wearing her clothes, She's like gives him a blowjob. She feels and this is probably like just in her highness, she feels like, oh, is that a wart on his on his Dick. Like did, uh, did I was that in my mouth? I feel really bad. Yeah, this is how gross it is. Mean, yeah. Just FYI, again, yeah. college stats really gross, right. right? Yeah. So she's like, "Oh my god, I don't know." This I feel really weird about this. So she's like, "I think I want to stop." I feel really uncomfortable. And he's like, "Why?" And she's like, "I just want to stop." I feel really uncomfortable. She says it a few more times. He's like, "I think I should get at least a chance to like." have 2 minutes to like convince you otherwise or something and they're like kissing and she's like I want to leave and they're like kissing and he's like I want to leave and there's playful grabbing back and forth of arms and like can I leave kind of thing and finally they kind of like you know disentangle themselves and exchange numbers and she leaves and then later says to herself like oh shit I think that was sexual assault okay so In this long story I've just told you, what have we learned? A, I'm not sure that's sexual assault. B, it's not cool at all, right? Because not only were the thoughts that that woman is having super sad. Like, I feel really sad that a young female student would be thinking to herself, oh, my God, I have to give this guy a blowjob because I feel bad that I worked him up, like Guys should be able to kind of control themselves and just, like, jack off in the bathroom, right? Like, I mean, come (laughs) on. Just take care of yourself. Enough already, right? (laughs) But not only is it sad, but the push-pull that happened with after she said, I want to leave, should we punish that as a college? Again, University of Massachusetts at Amherst did not punish that guy. But – I think that those are exactly the kinds of situations that we should pinpoint, right? Where we say, like, this isn't about the Harvey Weinstein situation. And it's not really about the coincidental factors that led to a girl being, you know, aggressively assaulted in a Vanderbilt hotel room. This is just about the normal shit that happens during a weird college encounter when people are way too high and not really sure what's going on and have all sorts of weird like ideas of like, well, you came here, so we should continue this hookup and the girl kind of feels responsible. And like, that's where it gets so hard where you're like, I want to punish this guy. But I also want him to know that when he hears a girl say, I want to leave, he doesn't get a fucking article written in the Atlantic about how he's blameless, you know, because over and over, if you look at the underlying legal documents of these cases, it's not that fucking cut and dry. It's not that that boy was totally innocent. Right. It's that something really weird happened. It wasn't cool. Maybe on both parts, it wasn't cool. And... And now you have a university entering and a university is trying to find like guilt and blame and punishment, and it gets real pear-shaped real quick. But the underlying episode isn't a good one, you know? Um, it
0: wouldn't, yeah. If you actually saw it, it would make you really, it would make you It really would make skeevy. you really <laughs> uncomfortable. Yeah. So like,
1: you know, even when you talk to the families of the accused boys, you know, they say things like... There's none of us who would say that our boys did not act well on the night in question. They did not use good judgment, but there's a difference between not using good judgment and being a criminal with intent to harm. And I think that's true. Yeah. But if we want to make large scale social change around sexual norms, You know, we can't just focus on the Harvey Weinsteins. We have to look at the, like, quotidian early sexual experiences of kids and say, how do we put new kinds of boundaries on and have a new standard for, like— We just know like almost linguistically that people don't say no that much. So just saying like, if you don't hear a no, then that person is agreeing to have sex with you is really dumb, you know, but I want to leave. I'm really uncomfortable. I want to leave. That should be a cue to take your hands off that person, right? That's not, oh, let's have a push pull for a few more minutes here, (laughs) Right. right? Right. So That's a lot of what I found in my research, basically, was just that those were the scenarios that were really, really common and really vividly being renegotiated. So how do we... And
0: I can relate. I mean, if I'm being totally honest, like thinking back to college, being drunk, being 19, Mm -hmm. not like being hormonal, like all that stuff, like, you know, it's uh, like you said, college sex is not very glamorous right it's, <laughs> it's not so,
1: we kind of like elevate it as though like this is the time of your life but it wasn't and, actually and, at all well, and guys <laughs> and the thing too
0: i mean girls i feel like girls are a little a little ahead of guys uh in a lot of ways guys i remember i had no idea what i was doing right I didn't know how to approach women. Like, Mm -hmm. and so you drink to take the edge off, like to have enough courage to go talk. because you're
1: insecure. Because you're insecure
0: and it's just a big mess. You know, like by the time you finally get courage to go express interest in a girl, you're just like shit faced. And then if it works out, then it's just, you know, it just becomes this sort of like uh, avalanche of uh, awkwardness. But, you know, you talk about diving down into the quotidian and, and trying to, if you're gonna enact large scale social change, you know, work with this nuance. And I, I'm with you on that. My question is like, how do we do that while at the same time, I feel like so many young men in our country and in our culture and in cultures all over the world are getting their sex education from porn. Mm -hmm. Like porn is a huge factor. Yeah. I feel like like, and increasingly so way more so than when I was a kid. Yes. You know, like I, I feel like with internet porn, like the accessibility of it, um, To young people, like, I can only imagine high school kids these days with the internet must just be, like, uh, I mean, right?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that researchers have not been able to, like, draw a one-to-one connection between, like, porn and, like, sexual assault, basically. But, um, you know, they do think that all the kind of low-level, like, aggressive acts in porn, just, like, hair pulling and slapping and all that kind of stuff – could have an effect of like normalizing that, um, anal sex. And also, you know, like the blowjob stuff has been rising. Right. And there's complicated reasons for that, including like the rise of abstinence education and Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky kind of making that a safe topic for the dinner tables of, you know, all of us. And, um, you know, there's, know it's complicated because like as a liberal i'm not interested in saying that certain kinds of sex are should be off limits right but i am interested in reeling in things that make the people are actually really unhappy with but just not expressing their unhappiness with those things um and something like anal sex, which is, like, what, something that comes up a lot in my book, um, which is, you know, <laughs> like, really, again, like, there really awesome part of my book. 74 entries in the index. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, this Emma Sulkowicz situation of, you know, they had had intercourse that night, but um, then he kind of escalated the situation to anal sex and she protested and he like overrode her. Um, and there are a couple of other episodes in the book that are about kind of forced anal sex, or at least what's perceived as forced anal sex, you know, like that's not something that like a college kid who doesn't know what he's doing is going to do like an awesome job at. And (laughs) like, you know, it's kind of like something college guys want to try. Like, how does it feel? Does it make you gay to do this? What is it like? Like, you know, there's like very little that a girl can do in that situation when she's already like kind of in the bed with the guy and feels really uncomfortable expressing her desires or even her limits. So, you know, a lot of the interesting work that's going on now is around like how do we retrain girls to think about sexuality in the abstract, right? Because guys kind of develop these fantasies of these different things they want to do. And girls, because their sexuality is so much connected to what that girl was thinking at university of Massachusetts at at Amherst, like how do I make this guy satisfied and happy? What can I do to make sure he's satisfied, right? That's really their kind of primary motivation. Um, There's a program in Canada Um, That is teaching kind of self-defense, but also teaching girls to think like, you know, kind of write down, okay, what would I do with whom? So like, would I have anal sex? You could write down, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have that with anybody. Or you could write down, I would have that with a hookup. Or you could write down, I would only have that with my like marriage partner, you know, you know and think about like all the different sex acts in this kind of abstract and what they actually would do so that in the moment on the mattress, it's not so confusing and right. it, all the kind of pressure that's coming from the partner, plus like the societal ideas of like, well, if I don't do this, am I a prude? And like, do other girls do it? And like, I don't know what to say and maybe I'll just try it because, I mean, I don't know. On the other hand, you could say like, okay, to experiment. I mean, experimentation is good, Um, but experimentation, like within boundaries is kind of where you want to land, right? So, you know, they're getting really good results from that program. Hmm. Um, and, you know, I think that's, I think it's really about deepening like young women's Um, kind of understanding themselves sexually. And I think that's happening. Like a lot of what has been happening in culture in the last few years around young women saying, you know, kind of like dressing much more provocatively, um, being much more open about their sexuality, um, like kind of just like being like i'm woman hear me roar and basically all aspects of the female experience um not all of that is performative not all of that is like to get attention like some of that is really like i'm feeling myself and i want other people to know that i feel good about myself and the way i look and like you know Myself as a sexual being, and I'm going to try to be more empowered. We're just like not really seeing that in terms of data. Like, okay, now we know that young women are really setting these boundaries in the bedroom. I mean, there's, <laughs> I haven't seen a study that says anything like that. And we also know that, you know, a lot of women, you know, are young women are having you know, eating disorders and depression and all sorts of things that would kind of indicate that some of the sexualization is not empowering. Um, so it's complicated, but it's it's very much like in the national consciousness now, we're grappling with it. Um, we're trying to figure out like, where is the line of consent? And what does it mean to really look at young women as like fully sexual. Beings and not just women, you know, who are in the service of men, and not just say like the natural order of things is that guys should like get their way in the bedroom because like this is the way it always has been traditionally for humankind. So why would we ever change it? You know, these are like kind of exciting topics that are being broached in like in a national mainstream way. You kind of couldn't even begin to have this conversation five years ago.
0: I don't think you could do it without the internet.
1: No, definitely not. I mean, that's a
0: huge factor Mm because like these things are uncomfortable. I think more uncomfortable for people in person, but it's the kind of thing that you can sort of like, you can engage with online back and forth. And um, I feel like people are maybe more inclined to be open. Right. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So um,
1: yeah. And also more inclined to share like their bad, their are bad experiences, things that they're upset about. They're much, it's, it's, it's an anonymous machine. Even if you have your name on it, it feels anonymous when right. you're posting things, right. right? It's like a confessional. It's a confessional. <laughs> it's our, totally is our confessional. It's like, you know, father confessor definitely is like the Mac, the, the Mac Twitter account. <laughs> yeah. But just like, I mean. The fact that that woman, Zoe, was able to just put her story on Medium, she didn't even have to go through a journalist to get it out there, you know, and it could just be exactly what she wants to say and people can interact with it and think about it and add to it. Yeah. I mean, the internet is like kind of not only a great equalizer, but it's been, it's not a good secret keeper. Like it's really has upended a lot of um, like the secrets of misogyny and racism and kind of like these sexual assault secrets. And it's just too easy for people to swap information now. Yeah, you well, know? I got to
0: say, it's I've, I've, I've learned a lot. For as much as I bristle, uh, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. I'm just like, fuck, this social media drives me crazy and the internet is so annoying. And like, yeah, I've learned a lot from it. And sometimes like it can be uncomfortable to to feel like your own blind spots, mm-hmm. like I definitely have them. And like, that's on, mm-hmm. un, that's unsettling when I'm like, God, I missed this. I yeah. missed a lot, you know, in my life. Like when you think back to like your college experience and being aware of all this activism,
1: mm-hmm. I wasn't, right?
0: I wasn't, yeah. you know, and it wasn't cause I didn't want to. I just, I just blind, you know, I just right. had a different set of experiences. Yeah. Um, so, you know, for that, it's I think definitely it's definitely
1: coming back around. Yeah, so you're no, you're, you're getting, getting the now. full <laughs> dose right now. Like, yeah. I mean, what's so sad is that it's also created this like concomitant backlash of like men's rights activists and um, you know, people are mad about like video game players and yeah, just like all yeah. of this insanity that's, you know, the anger that's directed towards women online exists offline too i mean that's what's so weird for me like when i started writing this i kind of thought like but we're all on this side like we're all on the like sexual assault sucks kind of side (laughs) um and these people who are trolls on the internet they're not real people they're just trolls who get mad at women like you know women writers know that like you always have like a bunch of like misogynistic guys posting mean things in the comments sections of your articles or whatever. And I just never took that very seriously because I was just like, why would I take a troll seriously? Who cares? You know, but as we learned, like, actually there was a lot more hate than I gave credit. Um, And, you know, this issue of sexual assault, I really think is very, very deeply tied to kind of the rise of the alt-right, because it was really early in this kind of culture war. It was one of the very first topics on the chopping block. Um, You know, one of the core shibboleths now of the men's, uh, of the alt-right is that women lie about rape, right? Right. Um, Or at least they're making a mountain out of a molehill, right? Or at least they just want to kind of disavow the true nature of man and the true order of like, you know, the natural order of things. Um, And there was a lot of like kind of back and forth going on between the victims who came out publicly and those kind of core, you know, early men's rights activists that happened around the time of Gamergate, like right kind of after that. And so I think that, you know, the propulsion of the backlash was like really fueled by some of the anger over this issue and like the true injustice, you know, that these guys felt was happening to them. Um, You know, we kind of think of it as Trump as a racist president created by a black lives matter movement, but it's really much more like in a black president, right. The backlash to that. Um, I don't like, think Trump, we can Trump, discount is, Trump is about that. Obama backlash. Well, I think a lot of people think that, yeah, that's about Obama backlash and that black lives matter really pushed, um, kind of white people who are already kind of thinking like, well, I don't want another, I'm not gonna have a woman president. After I just had this black president, you know what I mean? Like people who were kind of like ready for change in a more conservative direction. um That Black Lives Matter kind of pushed the situation over the edge because they were so offended by the, you know, kind of uppityness, right, of the black people, and then also like the attack on cops. You know, a lot of people really don't like that. Um, But I think that we can look a little further back and start looking more closely at the um, sexual assault in college issue and the Gamergate issue and all the issues that were going on around like um, men's rights activists being really angry about women getting custody of kids and, you know, that whole thing. Um, I think history may find that that was actually more um, significant kind of as the flame, I, I mean, as the match, right? for the flame. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's scary times here. It is. It's a weird time. (laughs) I know. I mean, it's like,
0: I, like I said, I was reading about it and finding myself feeling physically like shaken in a way that, uh, I, I can't count very many times where i've had that experience
1: right well i mean as like white americans you know we know that like we cannot possibly understand the experience of being a black american right like it's like walking on the moon or it's as just a guy i can't different. i can't
0: understand being a woman you know it's right, like what's exactly. going and on i think
1: this harvey weinstein thing has really shown people that like women also have a reality that is so foreign to men right um that you almost just can't believe that these things could go on you know again like i wrote a relatively optimistic book i'm interested in kind of saying like these younger women are not accepting all of this and we need to really um support them in that you know and not just call them like snowflakes or say like they're social justice warriors and they're annoying or you know they're like you know, kind of self-styled victims or all the like normal attacks that have been happening on um, young radical college students. Like, I think we should just be like, okay, it's idealistic. Okay. Like, okay, fine. Public grope is not the same thing as the physically violent rape. I'm not going to say that I rhetorically agree with everything you're saying, but on a level of just like, let's fix this kind of like, let's, just try to take some baby steps forward, you know, they're the new generation and they're the ones that are kind of going to be shepherding, you know, these ideas through the world. We're kind of like done at this point. Like we got our kids, (laughs) whatever, we got our mortgages. (laughs) We're just like, all right, you know, you know, it's for, it's for the young now to kind of argue about and sort out.
0: So about like separate from this, I want to talk just briefly about your career in journalism because I know a lot of people Mm -hmm. listening. Uh, are writers and might look to your career and the things that you've done and been able to do the big magazines that you write for. Like that's a job that I think a lot of people are like, how do you get that job? I
1: know. Well, you can't get it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> I, I barely have this job anymore. Yeah. Um, but
0: you've done a lot. I mean, you've mm-hmm. written for like New York Magazine, Rolling Stone, Vanity Fair, mm-hmm. New York Times Magazine. Yeah. You've interviewed and profiled uh, like, you know, dozens.
1: Right. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I've been doing this for like 20 years. So yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I'm a classic long form writer, right? Like I very rarely write anything that, I mean, obviously connected to the book, I wrote a bunch of stuff that was short, but like, you know, my stories are always like kind of four to 8,000 words and usually take at least a couple of weeks, if not a couple of months and really run the gamut, you know, but are always in the kind of general area of like these are things you would read in a glossy magazine like if it's not a profile of an important person then it's about like a social trend or it's about um the the divorce of the Dodgers and what happened to the Dodgers team. And it's like an investigative piece where you go and look at all the legal documents and you try to find different sources and try to piece together, like how did, you know, the McCourts kind of try to take the Dodgers like out <laughs> like, out of business basically, you know? Um, and, Yeah. I mean, look, that's all stuff that's really hard to do unless you're super connected to people in New York city who give you those assignments. And I worked at New York magazine as an assistant, um, for years and I worked my way up there to, I mean, being a writer, you kind of don't really work your way up. You're like either not doing much or you're writing. Right. But it's not like I was in an editorial track ever, but, um,
0: Like, how did you you get your, how do you get your first break? How do you get your first assignment?
1: Well, okay. So, I mean, I had like, uh, you know, somebody who cared basically. Um, a guy who now runs a magazine called 429 in LA, uh, which is a men's magazine. Um, he liked me and we became friends and he was an editor and he cared and he taught me how to to do it. Right. He taught me basically. because I didn't go to journalism school. Um, and would you study? I was an English major. So okay. I, you know, wrote my thesis on Thomas Pynchon. Like I was very kind of esoteric and I thought I was going to go be a professor and like just live in Kansas and like, um, write books, um, and teach. And, you know, that was kind of the end of the story. Um, and got this, job at a magazine, like just through like a series of random events and thought I would check it out. Um, But I was, you know, this guy cared about me. And I also took over the job of selecting the party photos for New York Magazine. And then I would write like little kind of like funny copy to go with them. And that meant that I started to go out at night. Um, to like fancy parties with fancy important people, and um, I were you were learned- the photographer. No, no, I was oh. the I was the writer. You're the observer. Um, I was the observer. I was like the writer for kind of like the little party write ups of like, oh, there was this party for this brand of champagne and harvey weinstein was there (laughs) and donald trump was there and melania trump was there Uh, you know that kind of thing you've been around trump in in person um i have been around him a couple of times but i've never like extensively interviewed him which i'm now like kicking myself for basically because anybody who everybody's like rustling through their like basements looking for their old trump tapes now but um You know, I would go and interview, I would kind of interview them on the fly in the actual event. So I was invited in the event. I wasn't behind the red rope outside, right? Um... There's been a lot of talk this week about all the journalists who are on the Harvey payroll in terms of like, oh, Harvey gave a movie deal to this one, or he would invite this one up to, you know, I don't know, I was about to say up to his hotel suite, but I don't even (laughs) want to say that. (laughs) But like, you know, he would invite him to the party or whatever you were in. Access. uh, Access. And there was somebody who I knew years ago who said, well, you know, Harvey always Invited me in. I didn't have to stand behind the red rope. I got to go into the party and hang out with like Matt Damon and Ben Affleck and like have drinks and like chat as like a peer, not as just like a crappy reporter behind a red rope asking questions, like shouting at a yeah. celebrity yeah, as yeah. she walks by. And like, I was that reporter. Like I was in those parties with exactly those people. You must have so many good stories. I was not on stories. the payroll. You must have so many good I, stories. Barely. I was so young. I just was like, dude, I was like very earnest and was like, I'm doing my job. You know, I'm trying to like just ask funny questions that would be good. And like screwing up my courage to like go up to Ben Affleck. Like I was never, I didn't have any fun. I didn't do anything naughty. I just was like trying to do my job. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like I, and I was around all those people who were on his payroll and like the funniest thing is, of course, none of their names have come out. And I'm like, dude, we all know their names. <laughs> you know, like,
0: what, what, you don't his, need to be mean, coy
1: about wait, it.
0: what do you mean? His colleagues or the, or the journalists? Oh, no,
1: no. There's just been, like, a lot of r- – r- right, uh, there's been a lot of articles this week saying, oh, there were all these journalists who were on Harvey's payroll and gossip reporters and people who Harvey would offer development deals to, basically. Oh, yeah, so yeah, he'd yeah. say, like, oh, hey, I want to develop your book and give you a couple grand and then you would be basically beholden to him and um write nice items about him or at least not right look into negative items say, about him it gets him.
0: harder to, to write something that's not so friendly when he's been paying you know, right throwing exactly you a few
1: exactly so i'm just saying that like as somebody who worked as a journalist at that time i'm like i could tick off those names for you if you'd like but you know you can't print you can't destroy people's careers unless you've got like evidence what's the evidence going to be that he didn't really want to buy that book you know to develop it like Whatever. I'm not saying there should be, like, a witch hunt of everybody who's ever been in contact <laughs> with Harvey Weinstein. I am. I am saying that. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, look, there's going to be a major reckoning. I think you can already see that the next legs of the story are, like, starting to stand up. It feels big. Right? It feels big. Like,
0: bigger than, like, these things normally are. It feels like something, like... Right. growing like we've, we've been building to this and like now it's popping or something
1: yeah well because we know that tons of people knew about this that it was orchestrated um and we know you know as much as i've stressed in this that he's you know somewhat unique he's not that unique i
0: was gonna say yeah and
1: there's gonna be a lot of stories that are gonna come out about other guys there's no question that all of the powerful people in Hollywood who live very close to your house are right now they calling all, their They, they live lawyers. all around <laughs> me. Right, they're all around you, <laughs> and they're talking to their attorneys right now about what exactly they need to do about this specific woman uh-huh. who they think might have something to say. You're right, and. You know, I mean, the crisis PR people are racking up the bills (laughs) this week. They are making bank with these conversations. How are we going to put our story out first or your story out second? NBC, what did NBC know? I mean, (laughs) the hours, you know, the great story, of course, is all the journalists who are now on the other, you know, are on the other line with the crisis PR people and the attorneys For everybody who is connected to Weinstein. What do you mean? What do you mean? Well, I mean, like, you know, all the people who are on Weinstein's board um all of the people who may have touched this scenario and known what was happening are getting calls from reporters oh, from right. major outlets and their call is not they're not like oh yes let me tell you what happened they're like hanging up the phone and calling an attorney or they're calling a crisis pr person they're trying to figure out like how do i worm my way out of this or something like you know Ronan Farrow has been very clear that he blames NBC News for not um, taking his reporting around Weinstein seriously. You know, now NBC News executives got their crisis PR team on the phone with all of those reporters who are reporting that story to say, no, we did take it seriously. He didn't have it nailed down enough. You know, like this kind of... um stuff that goes on behind the curtain. That is part of how Weinstein survived for so long was by having really good people on his team to kind of like berate and confuse reporters and say, well, that story, if you were right about that story, then how come you have that date wrong? Cause that date was actually, that was on a Thursday, not on a Wednesday. That means your whole story is wrong. Do you know what I mean? Like, well, as a reporter, we know all of the tricks that are used by, you know, PR teams when they go kind of on the offensive, um, to create doubt basically in your editor's mind. So there's enough doubt in your editor's mind that you might be wrong. And there's a realization this is too high profile a story to be wrong on. Um,
0: and if we get it, like we take a shot at the King and we miss, right. Then now we have him as our enemy. We don't get access to all these celebrities who, right? But
1: right? I mean, that's, well, I think it's also litigation. I mean, I think the fear you. is more about litigation right. than it is about. um, I mean, certainly, Miramax is nowhere where it used to be. But like, yeah, back in the day, it was definitely about Miramax and the access. But now it's kind of just like, mm-hmm. you Lawyers. know, you've got like a just like a monster <laughs> coming after you with the full. Force of like New York and L.A.'s like thousand dollar an hour PR and attorney teams. I mean, it's, you know, I faced that myself many times. And I of course, every time you do a big story, um, you know, the. the 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 people crop up and they're usually the same people, you know, and I have relationships with some of those people, right? Like the crisis PR people and the attorneys. And there's a lot of similar attorneys who are called upon when Lance Armstrong is in trouble, you know, Um, when there's a big Gloria Allred case or something like that. Um, There's there's like certain people that keep cropping up and as a reporter, um, you know, those people also bring you information. They just bring you different information to replace the first kind of information you have. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, it's kind of a balancing act of like, well, do I want to lose part of my story? Because I could still save my story if I put in this stuff that this guy gives me, Um You know, but it's all under the guise of, like, help. It's not really help. Um, It's misdirection. So I'm really impressed with, like, the work that the Times did on this and the work that Ronan Farrow did on this. And, you know, it really is – the Weinstein story really is a story that was an open secret in New York and Hollywood. And it is grotesque. Like, it is – I'm sure hard to hear me say like I was in these parties and I knew exactly what was happening 20 years ago, you know, but I was just a kid. Like, what was I supposed to do? But, you know, I don't know. I mean, it never even crossed my mind that I could have pursued that story and make, made it stick. Because I know that knew that the forces were arrayed against me, even though I have walked into stories like The Dodgers Divorce story, which are just as gnarly, you know, just as aggressive attacks on, on both sides, you know, um on trying to find the truth. you know, I think that until recently, you know, to kind of bring it back to the theme of this discussion, until recently. There wasn't an understanding amongst top editors at major mainstream outlets that this was even a story worth printing, right? Like, if you went to them with your Weinstein story, you're going to be like some wild-eyed, freaky feminist who right. was just, like, had Weinstein in your sights and was super angry. And, like, could you even be trusted, right? It's only... As this consciousness has been raised and as the Cosby and Ailes and O'Reilly stories have come out that, you know, editors like gatekeepers have started to say like, okay, this is not a private matter right? This isn't just about like what Weinstein does on his off time. And we feel confident that we don't need to report it in this story because he wrote personal checks for his settlements versus checks from Disney. So it's not really, shouldn't really be in a business story, right? Shouldn't really be in a profile of him. It's not really germane. It's his private life and we don't want to get involved. And that really was the attitude, you know, until recently.
0: Well, I mean, all for the good, in my opinion, you know, and uh, it's been great to talk with you. Your book is so fascinating. I'm glad that we get to shine some light on it in the book club. And I just thank you for making time to sit here with me and, and discuss all this stuff.
1: Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: Okay, guys, there you go. That's Vanessa Gregoriadis. Her book is called Blurred Lines, Rethinking Sex, Power, and Consent. On campus. It's available now from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. It is an Eamon Dolan book. You can find Vanessa online at VanessaGregoriadis.com. She's on Twitter, and uh, I believe her handle over there is at Vanessa Gregor. Track her down on Twitter. Blurred Lines. Go get your copy. It is the official October selection of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. If you want to sign up for the Nervous Breakdown Book Club, do that at the theNervousBreakdown.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars, as always, for the music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. You know, you can tell me a story. Let me know what you think of the show. Voice your concerns over my uh, consumption habits. Check in to make sure I'm okay. <laughs> I appreciate it. So, it's all, you know, it's all very difficult stuff. This, uh, you know, consent, college campuses, Harvey Weinstein. There's a toxicity to it that I find very difficult to uh, navigate. As I was telling Vanessa, you know, trying to just digest the awfulness of these stories. And I think, you know, you compound that with what a difficult time I'm obviously having with the uh, Donald Trump presidency. It just gets to me. It overwhelms me and i find myself thinking the worst of people to a degree that makes me unhappy you know all these people speaking out not not the vic- you know not the victims but the people on the periphery voicing all of this shock there's a part of me that's just like oh fuck you you knew you know to have those kinds of like cynical thoughts and maybe you know not unfounded but got to give people space right try not to be too dark that's the challenge not to like you know spiral into some sort of despair or some sort of permanent fixed state of uh I don't know of like I hate humanity maybe that maybe that's what I should be doing (laughs) trying not to though I don't want to do that I don't want to live there you know Don't forget about the Other People app. This show has a free app. It's a good way to listen. All the episodes, nearly 500 and counting, they're all right there waiting for you free of charge. Don't forget about uh, patreon.com slash other Pod if you want to support the show. Otherwise, uh, read Vanessa's book. It's a very fascinating meditation on everything that's going on. If you're a parent like me of young children who you know are not yet at the college age, it's a terrifying reminder of what's to come. college years are intense I feel like in some ways they were way more intense for me than high school everyone's always like oh high school junior high adolescence is so tough I feel like a college in early 20s was way way more intense I guess it just depends maybe I had kind of a sheltered you know this sheltered midwestern upbringing it seems very folksy right now in the rearview mirror So, uh, good podcast lately, I feel like. Good conversations with a varied, uh, you know, uh, set of writers. Feel good about that. Hope you guys are enjoying the program. Got some other good ones coming up. So stay tuned. And like, if you're a guy, and I I say this as a man, though I guess, you know, I'm out of the game. I'm married. But even as a married man. Like, just try, try to be less of an asshole <laughs> that's your that's your job i'm giving you a job just try to be less of an asshole that's what i tell myself